Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 28th. In today's news, the CDC confirms six coronavirus symptoms that keep showing up over and over again in patients. Schools plot how they'll reopen in the fall. And what does a pandemic sound like? For many of us, it's heartbreaking silence. But first, the big idea. U.S. intelligence agencies issued stark warnings about the novel coronavirus and more than a dozen top-secret briefings prepared for President Trump in January and February, two months during which he continued to downplay the threat. The repeated warnings were conveyed in the president's daily brief, the report that's produced before dawn each day and designed to call the president's attention to the most significant global developments and security threats. For weeks, the PDB, as the report is known, traced the virus's spread around the globe. It made clear that China was suppressing information about the contagion's transmittability and its lethal toll, and it raised the prospect of dire political and economic consequences for the United States. But these alarms appear to have failed to register with the president, who routinely skips reading the PDB and has at times showed little patience for even the oral summary that he takes two or three times a week. The advisories being relayed by U.S. spy agencies were part of a broader collection of worrisome signals that came during a period now regarded by public health officials and other experts as a squandered opportunity to contain the outbreak. The death toll in America this morning from COVID-19 is at least 55,681. The frequency with which the coronavirus was mentioned in the PDB has not been previously reported. And U.S. officials tell my colleagues Greg Miller and Ellen Nakashima on the intelligence beat that these warnings reflected a level of attention comparable to periods when analysts have been tracking active terrorism threats, serious overseas conflicts, and other rapidly developing security issues. U.S. officials emphasized that the PDB references to the virus included both comprehensive articles on aspects of the outbreak, as well as smaller digest items meant to keep Trump and other senior administration officials apprised on the course of the contagion. Versions of the PDB are also shared with cabinet secretaries and other high-ranking U.S. officials who apparently also failed to heed the warnings. One official says that by mid to late January, The coronavirus was being mentioned more and more frequently, either as one of the report's main articles or in what's known as an executive update, and that it was almost certainly called to Trump's attention during the oral briefings. The administration's first major step to arrest the spread of the virus came in late January when Trump restricted travel between the United States and China, where the virus is believed to have originated late last year. But Trump spent much of February publicly downplaying the threat while his administration failed to mobilize for the major outbreak by securing supplies of protective equipment, developing an effective diagnostic test, and preparing plans to quarantine large portions of our population. Trump insisted publicly on February 26th that the number of cases, quote, within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. He said the day after that, quote, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. In reality, the virus was moving swiftly through communities across the United States, spreading virtually unchecked in New York City and other population centers until governors began imposing sweeping lockdowns, required social distancing, and all but closed huge sectors of our national economy. As late as March 10th, 
Trump said, quote, just stay calm. It will go away. By then, according to inside sources, the warnings in the PDB and other intelligence reports going to the president had taken on an insistent daily drumbeat. U.S. intelligence agencies were devoting immense resources early on. At the CIA in Langley, the effort involved agency centers on China, Europe, and Latin America, as well as departments devoted to transnational health threats. U.S. intelligence officials citing scientific evidence have largely dismissed the conspiracy theory that the virus was deliberately genetically engineered, but they say they continue to examine whether the virus somehow escaped a virology lab in Wuhan where research on naturally occurring coronaviruses has been conducted. The warnings that were conveyed to the president and the PDB will be a likely focus of any future investigation of Trump's mishandling of this pandemic. Congressman Adam Schiff, the Democratic chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, called earlier this month for the formation of an independent commission, analogous to the one created to investigate the September 11th terrorist attacks. In response to that probe, the George W. Bush administration was pressured to declassify portions of a PDB from August 2001, warning that al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden were, quote, determined to strike in the United States. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the CDC confirmed six new coronavirus symptoms that can appear two to 14 days after exposure. Chills, repeated shaking with chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, and a loss of taste or smell. Previously, the CDC had listed just three official symptoms, shortness of breath, cough, and fever. Though not listed by the CDC, fatigue has also been reported by many people who have either tested positive or been told to assume that they have COVID-19 when testing has not been available. During the past few weeks, health experts have noted how COVID-19 attacks many of the organs in the body, and in some patients, physicians are reporting a blood clotting complication that does not respond to anticoagulants. Autopsies have shown that some patients' lungs have filled with hundreds of microclots, and larger clots can break off and travel to the brain or heart, causing strokes and heart attacks that are really deaths from the virus. British authorities warned doctors across the country overnight of a spike in the number of children requiring ICU care. The National Health Service says that doctors in and around London are seeing a growing number of kids coming in with common overlapping features of toxic shock syndrome and another condition that results in dangerous blood vessel inflammation. The description of the symptoms in the NHS alert sounds like it could be related to the same clotting phenomena that we've been talking about that makes COVID-19 different than your typical hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola, Zika, or Dengue. British health authorities are declining to reveal the number of their pediatric cases other than to say serious complications related to the virus are rare but of growing concern. Now, toxic shock syndrome is most often discussed in the context of tampon use and women who are menstruating, not little kids. This is a troubling development. And there's also growing evidence that the real coronavirus death toll in America is vastly higher than the official count. In the early weeks of this epidemic, the United States recorded an estimated 15,400 excess deaths, nearly two times as many as were publicly attributed to COVID-19 at the time. 
This is according to a comprehensive analysis of federal data conducted for the Post by a research team led by the Yale School of Public Health. The excess deaths, which is the number beyond what would normally be expected for this time of year, occurred during March and through April 4th, a time when 8,100 coronavirus deaths were officially reported. The excess deaths aren't necessarily all directly attributable to COVID-19. They could include people who died because of the epidemic, but not from the disease, including others who were afraid to seek medical treatment for unrelated illnesses and then died from them. The count also reflects a tragic rise in suicides. Tragically, one of those suicides is Lorna Breen. The medical director in the emergency department at New York Presbyterian Hospital took her own life on Sunday. Her father, also a physician, said she had described devastating scenes to him of the toll that the virus took on her patients and herself. She tried to do her job, Phil Breen said, and it killed her. She was 49. Number two. Many teachers are scared of going back to school too early, and teacher unions are cautioning against it. Health experts warn that even if COVID-19 cases abate, a second wave of infection could arrive with flu season later this year. And while many parents are eager to end our national experiment in remote education, others are terrified that any return to school will expose their kids and then them to the deadly disease. But Trump told governors on a private conference call yesterday that he is intent on schools reopening this fall when he'll be facing re-election. And he said a key to a functioning workforce is a school system that allows parents to get back to work. School systems are figuring out how they can make this happen in the safest way possible. The new landscape could include one-way hallways, kids and teachers wearing masks, and lunch inside classrooms instead of cafeterias. Buses may run half-empty, and students may have their temperatures read before entering classrooms. And in districts all over the country, officials are considering bringing half the students to school on certain days with the rest learning from home, and then they would swap out. Something else that should be on your radar looking ahead is that experts are growing more worried that the United States could be just weeks away from experiencing what could become severe meat shortages. The staggering acceleration of supply chain disruptions is raising expectations of looming global shortfalls. The U.S., Brazil, and Canada, which account for about 65% of the world meat trade, have all closed major factories. And OSHA released new guidance last night for keeping meatpacking workers safe, though this could reduce supply. I personally bought a bunch of meat yesterday, including pork chops, to freeze just in case. If you're a carnivore, it might be worth thinking about doing the same. Meanwhile, over in Europe, Belgians are being urged to eat fries, or frites as they say, at least twice per week to show patriotic support for that country's farmers. The potato industry says around 750,000 tons of Belgian spuds will probably not be processed unless domestic demand increases because frozen processing is way down and their freezers are already full. Number three. In India, the incessant beep, beep, beep of cars has disappeared. In New York, Harlem's heart has stopped beating. In the suburbs of Detroit, the chatter of neighbors is muffled. In Toronto, the trains no longer whistle. And in Marseille, every day sounds like a holiday. All around the world, the silence rolls in and out like fog. It hangs in the air 
There, but not there. Impenetrable and fragile. Weightless and smothering. It's periodically disrupted by the shriek of an ambulance siren, the rattle of a construction truck, or the evening applause for first responders. For those lucky enough to work from home, FaceTime and Zoom keep the afternoon buzzing with a new familiarity. But eventually, the silence comes. We are deep in the horror and kicking our way to the surface. But there's so much emptiness. The Bible says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Sometimes, though, in this age of COVID-19, it seems that the sweet cacophony in our dreams is what soothes us, not the silence of our waking hours. Some people find the quiet calming. They feel closer to God. They give in to the stillness and consider their destiny. They have a silver lining attitude. The air is cleaner. Crime rates have dropped. School shootings have ceased. If you tilt your head and you squint, the quieting of the world can be seen as a gift. But when we, the agitated, try to breathe deeply and locate our spiritual center, it can feel so elusive. The silence isn't a respite. It's relentless. It's no longer the absence of sound. It is the sound. The silence can really be deafening. When a normally high-volume city is abruptly put on mute, our brain is hypersensitive to the shift. What we've experienced is akin to leaving a loud concert and stepping into the hush of the night. The silence registers intensely. But the quiet should not be confused with loneliness, which is a mental state. And silence is also not synonymous with solitude, although there are points of overlap, like a Venn diagram. Silence can be remedied with the click of a remote control, or you can throw open the home office door and let in the whirling dervish of a toddler. But this silence is unlike any other. It can't be filled by binging on Netflix or listening to audiobooks. It requires the complicated, sweeping, unmatched symphony of life. Let me close today with the story of two people who lived full lives. After 73 years together, Wilford and Mary Kepler from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, both tested positive for the coronavirus. Their long-distance courtship began when he was stationed on a carrier in the Pacific during World War II. He wrote a letter to her during the Battle of Okinawa. Then he came home, spent 35 years as a machinist for the same company, and they raised a family together. At the hospital, as their condition deteriorated, nurses moved their beds closer together so that they could hold hands. That is how Wilford died. Six hours later, Mary died too. He was 94. She was 92. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 28th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.